We're going to turn this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'd like us to look together as I'll read and you follow along the first five verses. The first five verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. This is the important text for our beginnings this morning. The apostle says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, last Lord's Day, I introduced a five-part series of sermons under the banner or theme, Rock Solid Truth for Trembling Times. And I would mention at this point, by the way, that each of these messages in this five-part series will be recorded. And the last Lord's Day, uh, we recorded the first of the series uh, which had to do with the Reformation cry of sola scriptura, or the word of God alone. We began that series. So these are available, and they are free of charge, and you can make your way to the reception area. If you were not here uh, last Lord's Day, or even if you were, and you'd like to collect all five of these and make them part of your uh, Christian library of resources for growth in grace, please help yourself I made a comment last Lord's Day. I guess I alarmed a few people. I said, if I only had five more sermons to preach in my life, and they thought maybe I'd gotten a severe diagnosis or something and might only have these five sermons to preach. But these would be the five I would select if these were the last times, uh, five times I had to preach God's word because it is foundation. It is rock-solid truth, as we're saying. Each of our five subjects are then statements of biblical truth upon which the true church of Jesus Christ was founded and ever since has been preserved for more than 2,000 years. We mentioned last Lord's Day, and I mentioned it again on this Reformation Lord's Day, that there was a time in church history when these Five essential pillars of truth seemed all but forsaken and forgotten. But of course, Christ continues all through the ages to renew his church. It is probably the case that a vast majority of professing Christians today sadly know very little of God's extraordinary work, his intervention in history, way back in the 16th century in what is called the Great Reformation. In the ecclesiastical Latin of the day, the reformers gave the church of Jesus Christ 
as a way of remembering the foundational truths, what we learned was the five solos or the five solaces, five statements of truth that you and I can and must depend on for all time and for eternity. What we are restating in these days, in these few weeks, is of such great importance. Those five, we looked at the Latin phrases, remember, the five solaces were these. Let me rename them. There is sola scriptura, that is scripture alone. We looked at this last Lord's Day. We saw that that phrase means that the word of God comes with full authority. It is God's word. It is a clear word. It is a necessary word. And finally, we looked at the fact that it is an all-sufficient word. God gives to us in the Bible everything we need for life and for godliness. Sola Scriptura. Now today, we will consider solas Christus. Christ alone, he, the only Savior of sinners, on him and only on him must you and I depend for salvation itself, for the forgiveness of sins. Thirdly, there is sola gratia, grace alone, the only means by which Christ saves the sinner not by works of righteousness or anything we do, but by his grace we are saved. Sola gratia. I know that the vast majority of you sitting here are saying already, I've always believed these things. Yes, and if you have, you are truly blessed. But I have to tell you that beyond these walls, while these truths are proclaimed in many places faithfully, there are many places where these truths, such as it was in Luther's day, have faded into the background if spoken of at all. So fourthly, we come to sola fide, or faith alone, by which God freely justifies the sinner. More scripture here. By grace, sola gratia, are you saved through what, folks? Through faith. And... The scriptures go on to say that not of yourselves, but as a gift from God. And that brings us to the fifth of the solaces. Soli Deo Gloria, or glory to God alone. You have a salvation that you can depend on because God saves the sinner Listen to this carefully. You ask sometimes, why did he save me? I know I ask that. And the scriptures give us an answer. That he may be glorified. Salvation de uh, designed in such a way that we can depend on it because God saves the sinner for no other reason than his own glory. He alone has designed salvation to be accomplished on our behalf, again, in such a way that he alone must be praised. All glory, honor, and praise to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So what do we have? Scripture alone, 
Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, for God's glory alone. On these things, and we're saying, and only on these things, can you and must you stand, as Luther did when he said, here I stand, with the truth that he had, in a certain sense, rediscovered in his day that was there all along in the Bible, the Word of God. These things are more than gloriously sufficient, I would say abundantly so, sufficient to sustain our lives now and for eternity. Today we lift up our voices then with the reformers of old and we shout, Solas Christus, Christ alone. Because all of the scriptures are ultimately all about Jesus Christ. Some have thought the Old Testament is fundamentally a book that's all about Israel or all about God's dealings with the nation that he called. But of course he did all of that, he tells us in the New Testament, as but a shadow of the things to come in the fullness of time when Christ would appear. In the Old Testament as well as the New, everything hinges and turns on the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So all of the scriptures are ultimately all about Jesus Christ. I want you to consider the sublime culmination of all things attributed to Christ alone by the Apostle Paul as one example when he was writing to the believers at Colossae. Now, we don't have to turn to Colossians 1 because I'm only going to read a couple of verses, but you can follow along. This is in the first chapter of the epistle of Paul to the Colossians at verse 15 and through 20, and it says this, He, speaking of Jesus Christ, is, listen to this list of things, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, Christ, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Thus saith the Lord, through the Apostle Paul. Surely you heard it. What more can he say than to us he has said, it's Jesus. It is all about the Christ. From Genesis, where Christ the Word speaks all things into existence. 
to the last amen of the book of Revelation. He, Christ, is the Alpha and Omega. That occurs to me, he's the A to Z, we would say in our English language, that you and I can't even spell our own name without recognizing the supremacy of Christ. He is Lord of life itself. Christ alone, Lord of all lords, King of all kings, the eternal one, God in the flesh. Let us pray. Indeed, Heavenly Father, you have made your only begotten Son to be Lord over all, so that in all things he may have preeminence. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Let it be more than a song we sing. Let it be the very reality of our understanding of who he is, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us then, Father, in our hearts to do just that today. We ask in the majestic name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. We need to answer the question, we'll ask it first, obviously. What did the reformers mean way back in the 1500s when they cried in a very dark day, Solus Christus? They meant, of course, just what the Bible says when it declares. There is no other name among men under heaven whereby we might be saved. Ultimately, what you believe about the person of Jesus Christ will determine yours and my eternal destiny. The Reformers took their stand on the confession of Christ alone when he himself proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those are the exclusive claims of Christ. No one can claim ever to have a relationship with God, a special relationship with God, apart from confessing that Jesus Christ alone is that way. Now, the one and only institution, the official church in Luther's day, had already made its congregation literally slaves to their own politics and doctrinal heresies as well. What they taught, literally, and still teach today, and even many a Protestant church attender would tend to confess, that salvation is to be found in church. That it is the church that saves. The church and its, well, sacraments 
its church and its traditions. And when it comes to the matter of authority and how we know how to relate to God, it's not so much found in the Bible as it is found in the decrees of the church. We sit here today, we wonder how in the world could they have ever drifted so far as to think that eternal salvation would come from one's relationship to the institution of the church. Salvation was nothing anyone in that day could be certain of. I noticed just before the choir sang this morning, Brother Melvin reminded us how wonderful it is to know we can have an assurance of our salvation. In Luther's day, no one had that assurance. In fact, I can tell you that while they taught penance in those days, while indulgences needed to be purchased to help people get out of purgatory, something they called purgatory, while confession to a human priest was absolutely mandatory, and then there was the doctrine of last rites, which I'll refer to again in just a moment. But I have to say this, as late in history, as in our time, the Pope, several years ago, revised the church's teaching on what they called This is just one example, the doctrine of limbo. This related to the question of whether babies who die without the church's sacrament of baptism could actually go to heaven. Now, for centuries and centuries and centuries of time, the church, exercising its authority and ignoring clear teaching of Scripture, simply developed a doctrine that said, no, we will not uh, say that babies who die in infancy, if they've not had the church's sacrament of baptism, we cannot guarantee to those parents that they will see that child in heaven. The church had long taught that unbaptized children enjoy a state commonly called limbo, but without being in direct communion with God. You see, they said they still have original sin and therefore must be excluded from heaven. So the church invented another place for them to be. And then, in modern times, as I said, this was something reviewed only recently, a few years ago, with so many abortions and a growing number of children who die without being baptized, the Pope began to urge a further study. Uh, They did not turn to the Bible to try to find any evidence. His own commission on the matter came up with this conclusion, and I will quote directly from the Roman Catholic doctrine. They said in the end of their studies together, there may be serious theological and liturgical church grounds for hope some hope that unbaptized infants who die will be saved and brought into eternal happiness. But then they added this. It's stressed, however, that these are reasons for a prayerful hope rather than the grounds for a sure knowledge. That's just one example, but I can tell you that the sum total of the teaching 
of this great branch of institutional Christianity in our day that still exists, the church that is headquartered in Rome gives no one any certainty of going to heaven. What comfort or hope does anyone have, children or adults, who have not received, by Catholic definition, the church's baptism, its sacraments, the Eucharist. And when I used to work years ago as a medical technician in the graveyard shift of an emergency room, where we had both dead on arrivals in the middle of the night and some just only slightly clinging to life. I remember how many times we quickly would pick up the phone on behalf of a family asking the priest to please come and come quickly. John Doe, in this case, has only moments perhaps to live. What then, I often thought, when more than once... The priest was stuck in traffic or took a wrong turn and the patient died. With a great deal of love in my heart, my New Jersey neighbor for many years, who of course knew I was a pastor, a devout Catholic man, a wonderful neighbor, he used to stand and we'd talk over the fence. More than once he would say this to me, you know, Jim, we both worship the same God. And then as he would turn to go back raking his yard after saying something nice to this Protestant preacher, you know, Jim, we worship the same God, except I'm going to heaven. And he seemed to have more assurance, although his church gives him none theologically, that because he was Roman Catholic and belonged to the right church, he would have some hope of heaven. And the reformers said, No, no, no. Put your confidence, they said, in Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And once you do, you must conclude and proclaim the second doctrine, solus Christus. Salvation by Christ alone. Not works of righteousness which we have done. Not even Christ plus good works nor all the entrapments of religious ceremony can save from sin. It is Christ plus nothing. Or as one of my favorite hymns puts it lyrically, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Many, many years ago, it was long before I was a pastor, in fact I was barely out of my teens, somehow or another, I was invited to preach at a community Good Friday service. Seven speakers would address over a three-hour period the seven last words of Christ from the cross. And in my youthful naivete, I did not know in advance what ministers were scheduled to speak on that Good Friday, I do remember in the middle of the service, suddenly, all of the congregation stood to their feet. Down the aisle, as I looked back to see what the commotion was, in royal robed splendor, 
came a priest. And I realized that he would speak just before I would have to take my turn. I have to tell you, I sat sweating bullets as he told the gathered congregation that Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the cross that day, must be crucial to our salvation. We were told by him that we were to honor her as a co-redemptress. After all, her son hung helplessly to a cross. Mary was there, you see, to intercede and apart from her intercessions, as is the doctrine, the Marian doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. No one, again, can have any confidence of salvation apart from her work. Well, I can tell you on that day, by the time I rose to my feet to speak, I had changed my chosen text. And while I did address one of the seven sayings, that was my duty, I concluded by emphasizing the truth of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says this, and says it so plainly, and says it so unequivocally, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. That is a solus Christus doctrinal statement, folks, directly from the word of God. I can tell you that would never be the Pope's life verse, that there would be just one man, and that that man, that high priest for his people, is Jesus Christ. I wonder if you are aware that priests under the authority of the Pope call themselves vicars of Christ. With the Pope, whichever one happens to be enthroned, is the vicar of Christ. The word vicar coming from the word vicarious. They really do teach that the Pope is Christ in the flesh. That he stands in the place of Christ with the same authority. But the word of God, as we've just read, says there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. And the only vicarious sufferings that we are concerned with are those vicarious sufferings of Christ. That is, he came in the flesh to stand in our place and take upon himself the punishment of our sins. Which is to say, solus Christus, Christ alone. Some things need to be said, beloved, if we're to be true to sola scriptura. Christians and Muslims do not worship the same God. I dare say Roman Catholics and Protestants 
with apologies to my neighbor, in a certain sense, do not in fact approach the same God in the same way, but scripture would teach only one is heard. I would say to you that any number of the cults, though they give a place to Jesus Christ, are far from understanding solus Christus, such as the Jehovah Witnesses. Christ is the issue. And we say to the beloved people of Israel, to the Jewish people, while many would say there's a special relationship that God has to the Jews, the Bible would say yes, if in fact they will embrace the one and the only mediator. Because I tell you folks, there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that being a Jew by birth brings you into a relationship with God apart from him who said there's but one mediator, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and how much more clearer can we say no one, no one, no one comes unto the Father but by him. Now what do I say to all those then? Many with great sincerity holding that they have a relationship to God and that it is apart from Christ. What we say out of a heart that weeps and what we do is bring the gospel to them. I'm for preaching the gospel to Jews who have not yet placed their faith in the Messiah Christ. I am for preaching the gospel to Muslims. I am for preaching the gospel to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. I am for preaching the gospel to anyone who has not yet bowed the knee and called Jesus Christ the only Savior, the Lord of their life. The supremacy and the exclusivity of Christ. This is the tension in our day, even among many Protestants who owe a great debt of gratitude to these reformers, have drifted once again to suggest, well, maybe there are more ways to God than just through the evangelical, fundamentalist, narrow definition that they must come and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We're in 1 Corinthians here, where I had you to turn. In the first chapter, the first four verses, listen to the first four verses. Paul called as an apostle, I'm going to emphasize here, of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of, again, our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God. Well, how do you get that? Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4, Paul says, I thank my God, always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. If you believe that salvation is by grace alone, then you have to believe that that salvation and that grace itself comes from the person of Jesus Christ. In those four verses, I've sometimes thought, if this were not sacred writ, you might think Paul was swearing. Five times he says in four verses, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. How do we miss it? And how dare we water it down? 
I wonder why that beautiful name is seemingly more on the lips of profane people than many redeemed people today. I meet far too many professing Christians who talk about everything and anything, even related to church life, but somehow it never gets very personal. Somehow they blush to speak his name as as though he's more of a, a religious icon than he is a real person. He is the living, the breathing, the loving, the real person, Jesus Christ. It says that life comes only by abiding in him. Now, this Apostle Paul knew nothing about this depersonalization of Christ. He says in Philippians 3, I count all things to be lost. This was a Jew speaking. I count all things to be lost. If you remember, he cast aside his Judaism. Those things that once were considered to be gained to him, he now counts them but rubbish, so that he may gain Christ. Christ is the issue. So that I might be found him. Now the former Pharisee says, not having a righteousness of my own, which was his whole former career in the faith, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes, he says, from God on the basis of faith. Oh, Paul says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformed unto him all the way to death. Knowing him, it's all about him and him alone. It's not religion after all. The whole book of Romans argues that one who is truly a Jew is one who had a faith like unto Abraham. And Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God that was not of this world. For us to cloud the issues, for us to soften any of this is not to love our Jewish neighbor, our Muslim neighbor, or even our Protestant or Roman Catholic neighbor who has failed to come to personal trust in faith, solus Christus, hoping and trusting in Christ alone. One of the most tragic stories I've ever heard, and it's true, was about a socialite couple who proudly had their newborn baby baptized according to their tradition. And following the ceremony, dozens of guests were invited back to their palatial home for an exquisite dinner. The mother, we are told, in a rush to greet the arriving guests, laid the sleeping baby in the middle of their king-size bed. Unwittingly, as guests arrived, the father of the child instructed the guests to simply take their coats and place them in the master bedroom. On the bed will be fine. Horrors of horrors. Without noticing the tiny frame in the middle of the bed, the coats just piled on top of the baby. Well, the dinner proceeded. When several of the guests began to ask, where's the baby? Bring her out. After all, this is her party. 
and to everyone's horror and to the parents' deepest of grief, that baby had smothered to death under the coats of everyone in attendance. And the point of my telling that awful story is this. Every first day of the week, we gather here, and we gather other times as well. Several folks just this very week, last week or two, was thanking God for the church family and for the fellowship that we enjoy. But I say, God forbid that we should forget whose party this is, the babe of Bethlehem, the Christ of Calvary, the risen, conquering, and coming again king. We are always at risk of ignoring him when it's supposed to be all about him. No wonder Paul would say, maybe he saw the danger in his own heart of drifting. I determined, I made up my mind, he says, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Solus Christus. We're all about a person, not a practice. We're all about coming together to worship him and not just to enjoy one another. He's the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Prince of Peace. He is eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient God. He's creator, supporter, and preserver of of all things. He's one with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's Jehovah the Eternal One. He's Jehovah Elohim, the I am that I am. He's Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He's Jehovah Yahweh, the Lord. He's Jehovah Nisi, our banner. He's Jehovah Shalom, our peace, Prince of Peace. He's Jehovah Rapha, our healer. He's Jehovah Sidkenu, our righteousness. He's Jehovah Shammah, he is present. Jesus is God. He's God yesterday. He's God today, and he will still be God tomorrow. You can't impeach him. He's not stepping down. You can't fire him. He's not going to resign. He won't run from you. He can't hide, and you can't hide from him. He always was. He always is. He always will be unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced. And he's pain. He was persecuted and brought us freedom. He was dead and brought to life. He's risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. He is light, love, and ever faithful Lord. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and pure. His word is eternal. His will is unchanging. And his mind, believe it or not, is on us. He's our Redeemer. He's our Savior. He's our guide. He's our peace. He's our joy. He's our comfort. We serve Him because His bond is love, His burden is light, and His goal for us is abundant life. He will never leave us, never forsake us, never mislead us, never forget us, and never just overlook us. And when we fall, He lifts us up. When we 
fail, he forgives. When we're weak, he is strong. When we're lost, he's the way. When I'm afraid, he's my courage. When I stumble, he steadies me. When I'm hurt, he heals me. When I'm broken, he mends me. When I'm blind, he leads me. When I am hungry, he feeds me. When I face trials, he is with me. When I face persecution, he shields me. When I face loss, he provides for me. And when we face the last enemy, which is death itself, this is the one who carries us home. He is God. His name is Jesus. Can you say, I am his, and he is mine, because nothing else matters. Solus Christus is your trust in Christ alone.